Let's turn now to our uh, second topic of the morning, be, um, building on those foundations that we uh, just laid in that first session. And in this session, we're going to be thinking biblically, we're going to be bringing these biblical principles to the specific issue of sexual orientation, how we should think about that. You may remember this scene, uh, a White House that was not very white, a multicolored White House. Uh, this was the scene uh, outside the White House on the evening of June 26, 2015, the day when the Supreme Court handed down its decision on the Obergefell versus Hodges uh, case, uh, which decided whether or not it was constitutional to have laws forbidding same-sex marriages. In other words, uh, this was a decision that uh, effectively legalized uh, same-sex marriage right across the United States. This day, this decision was arguably the crowning triumph of the LGB movement. Not the T, the T was really on the sidelines at this point, but the LGB movement seeking for the normalization of same-sex relations. This was the crowning moment. Arguably, same-sex relations had already been largely normalized in the culture already through, through media, through local laws. Of course, various states had already opened the door to same-sex marriage. But what this decision did was it marked the legal recognition of that normalization at the federal level, at the highest level of the Supreme Court. And the argument was then, and it continues to be, that laws against marriage equality, as it is called, discriminate unjustly on the basis of sexual orientation. That was the key concept, sexual orientation. This, it was argued this is a civil rights issue, just as there should not be discrimination on the basis of racial identity or ethnic identity or on one's sex, whether one is male or female. Neither should there be discrimination, certainly on the question of marriage, with respect to sexual orientation. And this introduced a slew of what are now being called SOGI laws, S-O-G-I, sexual orientation, gender identity. Laws forbidding discrimination on the basis of these two concepts of sexual orientation and gender identity. We'll come to the latter one uh, later on. In any event, these events, these, these legal events, these political events, these cultural shifts have put uh, evangelical Christians in an increasingly difficult position. Not only are there the political issues that we have to deal with, legal issues, the threat of uh, legal action, uh, discrimination uh, charges and so forth, there are, of course, the pastoral issues as well, which are arguably uh, even more important. Pastoral issues, how do we deal with people who, who claim a certain sexual orientation, um, someone who identifies as a gay Christian, uh, what, what do we do? How do we think about this whole concept, these ideas? So certainly with these challenges before us, we need to think clearly, we need to think biblically about the question of sexual orientation, and that's what I hope to do in this session. Give you a preview of what we're going to cover here. We start with definitions. We're going to define some terms, or ask how are these terms being defined, and how should we think about those definitions? I'm going to briefly talk about some basic facts, some basic statistical facts about this notion of uh, sexual orientation. Then we're going to talk a bit about worldviews, how worldviews affect views on sexual orientation, particularly these two worldviews of naturalism and postmodernism, how they have influenced thinking about this idea. And then we're going to spend some time 
developing a, a biblical approach, looking at the biblical position on this from different perspectives. I'm going to use a, a tri-perspectival approach. I know that sounds pretty fancy. Some of you may know what I'm talking about if you've read certain authors. But um, we're going to have a, a tri-perspectival approach to this topic, to look at it from different angles, um, and then draw out some practical implications at the end. So beginning with definitions, definitions. Before we get into any of these definitions, I first need to issue a sort of a caveat or warning. Definitions are never neutral. Not even in the English dictionary are definitions neutral. You may have even heard, um, just in the last couple of weeks, Merriam-Webster has added the definition of the singular they to, to reflect what they call non-binary gender identity. That's, that's a loaded definition. So definitions often frame things in particular ways. Definitions are, are often prejudicial, sometimes not intentionally, but often inadvertently they re reflect un uh, underlying cultural shifts. So even in, with these terms, we have to be careful how we define them, that we're not importing certain unbiblical value systems. Or if we are, we need to be careful about how we apply these terms. Now, starting with the, the uh, notion or the, the term sexual orientation, sexual orientation, there's actually a great debate in the literature today about how to define this term. Should it be defined in terms of attraction? What, 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 what is your sexual attraction towards members of the same sex or the opposite sex? Or is it desire, desire and attraction closely related, may not be the same thing, but is it about having certain desires? Or is it about behavior? Does your sexual orientation actually a matter of how you behave, not so much how you feel? Or is it a matter of identity, how you identify yourself? How do you define sexual orientation? There's a, a debate even out in the secular world about how this term is to be defined. The standard definition, or the one that's been widely adopted, was one issued by the American Psychological Association in 2008. So this is relatively recent, uh, although the term's been in currency for a while. This is a, an, really an attempt to sort of give a standard definition. And uh, this has been used in a number of places. It's very widely adopted. And it's this. Sexual orientation refers to an enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attractions to men, women, or both sexes. Sexual orientation also refers to a person's sense of identity based on those attractions, related behaviors, and membership in a community of others who share those attractions. Notice how this is a complete fudge, right? You know, you've got attraction in there, you've got identity, you've got behavior, you've got community. They're trying to, they're trying to rather than take a position, try and incorporate all of this into one definition. But this is the definition that is very widely used. Um, so you could speak of this as being the, now the standard or operative definition. However, there are dissenters. There are dissenters who are questioning whether this is a well-defined concept at all and whether there is anything like a consensus on the definition of, uh, of sexual orientation. For example, in 2016, uh, a journal known as the New Atlantis, which sort of has a remit to, to push back on received wisdom and to challenge ideas. It published a lengthy report by two authors, Lawrence Mayer and Paul McHugh. And the title of the report was Sexuality and Gender, 
findings from the biological, psychological, and social sciences. And it was a meta-review. It looked at all of the literature, all of the scientific literature, on issues of sexual orientation and gender identity, and tried to draw some general conclusions about what, what is evidence, what is grounded in evidence, and what isn't. Uh, Mayer, one author, was the uh, is a professor of statistics and biostatistics at Arizona State University. And Paul McHugh uh, is the uh, professor, I think now retired, of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at uh, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So no slouches, okay? These are, these are respected academics. But this is what they said in this report. In some, so drawing together all their research and review, in some, the complexities surrounding the concept of sexual orientation present considerable challenges for empirical research on the subject. While the general public may be under the impression that there are widely accepted scientific definitions of terms such as sexual orientation, in fact, there are not. So there's a public perception. Yeah, there's this thing, sexual orientation. We all understand what it is. In fact, it's being written into law. We can now, we can now write laws that depend on this concept of sexual orientation. And these authors are saying, well, actually, there's no consensus about what this is. And if you can't even define it, then how can you research it? How can you research something that isn't itself well defined? But anyway, we will be adopting something like this APA definition uh, going on here. We have some sort of sense of what is being talked about here. Some other terms uh, that are used in this debate, heterosexual and homosexual, um, usually defined as in terms of sexual attraction, either attracted to people of the opposite sex, hetero or same sex, homo. Um, these are terms that have been used for a while. Interestingly now, some LGBT advocates are arguing that homosexual is a prejudicial term that shouldn't be used. They, they argue that homosexual is a term that heterosexuals came up with to define people as other, is discriminatory, and uh, the LGBT community wants to use their own terms like gay, lesbian, bisexual, they'll define their own terms and not be defined from people who are other than them. So be, just be aware that even these terms are being challenged now. And then uh, bisexual, the B and the LGB, uh, means typically defined as same-sex attraction toward people of both sexes. But note how even there, in those definitions, you have a gender binary assumed. Bisexual, bi means two, right? Male and female. Now even that is being eroded by this idea that actually there isn't really a true gender binary, there's a fluidity in gender. So there's, there's an internal war being fought here, even within this, uh, this movement. This is a graph I think you will find interesting. You may not be able to see it clearly, so I'll, I'll point out the details here. Um, this is a graph that I, I drew up using uh, a website called Google Ngrams. I don't know if you've come across Google Ngrams. Basically, Google has a catalog of literature. I mean, Google being Google, you know, everything that's available digitally, they sort of suck it into their servers and have this, they have this corpus of English literature, books going back several centuries, actually. And you can put in a phrase and find out how frequently that phrase or term is used at any point in time. I put in the term, the phrase, sexual orientation, to discover its usage, how it is developed. It's very interesting. So uh, you don't need to worry too much about the scale here. You just see the increase. Sexual orientation doesn't start to be used until the middle of the 1960s. It doesn't become a, a well-used term until the middle of the 1960s. And then you can see it accelerates in the 1990s, and then it sort of starts to tail off around about 2000. That just gives you a sense of how recent a term this is and how its use has really exploded just since the, really since the time of the sexual revolution. That's the key here. 
Now, the concept, the idea of homosexuality or same-sex attraction, of course, goes way back. People have known for a long time that there are certain people who are erotically attracted to people of the same sex. But the idea that humans have a sexual orientation that's rather like they're being left-handed or right-handed. So are you left-hander or right-hander? Are you, are you homosexual or heterosexual? What is your orientation? That is uh, unarguably a recent idea. Facts. What are some of the facts that uh, we can point to here? Again, a caution. In a sense, there's no such thing as pure facts or unadulterated facts, bare facts. All facts are subject to interpretation, I suggest. Uh, what I mean by facts here are, are basic data points that are generally accepted. So uh, if people have done surveys of certain things, we can at least point to, to polling data or something like that. Well, what are the statistics on so-called sexual orientation? Here are some statistics provided by the uh, National Health Interview Survey, the NHIS. Uh, this is um, an organization within the National Center for Health Statistics, which is a government institution. Uh, you can go to the website cdc.gov and find these statistics. And uh, there was a survey, the most recent one was 2015, where they asked the question, which of the following options best, uh, best represents how you think of yourself? So this was a question asking, how do the people identify? How do they identify themselves? Uh, among male adults, 1.8% identified themselves as homosexual, 0.5% as bisexual. And among female adults, 1.4% self-identified as homosexual and 1.1% as bisexual. So, and these are the statistics that are, that are typically used or quoted. Uh, often these are inflated. Uh, people talk about you know, one in 10 people being gay and so forth. Even by self-identification, that, that is not true. Another fact is this. There is no scientific consensus on what determines, what, if anything, determines sexual orientation or same-sex attraction or anything of that sort. There is simply no consensus on what the underlying factors are be, whether it's nature, whether it's nurture. The most recent report came out only last month. There was an article in Science... Uh, the Science Journal, uh, the title of the article was How Do Genes Affect Same-Sex Behavior? No behavior there. How Do Genes Affect Same-Sex Behavior? It was a scientific study, and this was the conclusion of the authors. The study suggests genetics may have a limited contribution. <laughs> notice, notice the hedging there. Suggest, may, limited. I mean, that, that is not a firm scientific conclusion at all. We're saying this, there's some, some weak evidence that genetics play a role, but they're not determinative. In other words, no one has discovered anything like a gay gene, and there doesn't seem any likelihood that it is going to be discovered. There is, there is a gene for uh, left-handedness, actually. There's a genetic basis for left and right-handedness, uh, but nothing parallel to that for sexual orientation. And this is a very politicized debate as well, this whole debate over genetics, uh, on the one hand, something that if there is a gay gene, then that would, that would legitimize same-sex behavior. Uh, if there's a gay gene, then it would be natural, therefore it would be normal, just part of human variation. But then there are other groups, gay lobbyists, who, are, who don't like the idea of a gay gene because that might introduce a, a subtle eugenics. Oh, well, they, we can have genetic testing for your child. And if it turns out they're gay, you don't want a gay child, then... You know, just like people who discover their child has got Down syndrome. Oh, just abort it. Try again. Um, so there's, there's a real political debate over this scientific question. It's not neutral by any means. 
The last bit of fact about public opinion, public opinion on specifically the issue of same-sex marriage, support for same-sex marriage. In 2004, this is in the US, this is the source here is Pew Research, 60% opposed same-sex marriage and 31% supported it. In 2019, 31% opposed and 61% support. So in, basically you've had a reversal of public opinion over the last 15 years. That's a real dramatic shift, and there's all kinds of explanations for that, but largely legal rulings have influenced people's um, uh, opinion on this. I mean, there's a sense in which uh, the law follows the culture, but also the law influences the culture as well. Well, before we turn to a biblical perspective on these matters, let's think about how modern secular people view sexual orientation. As I argued in the first session, how you view matters of ethics will depend on your anthropology, your view of human nature, and that in turn will be situated within a broader worldview. So ethics flows out of anthropology, anthropology situated within a worldview. So let's consider how these two worldviews that I described earlier, naturalism and postmodernism, will understand or influence someone's views on sexual orientation, starting with naturalism. Naturalism, remember, is the view that everything that exists is natural. Only the natural universe exists. Everything can be reduced to physics and chemistry. And if anything's biological, then biological things can be reduced to physics and chemistry as well. On, on the naturalist view, sexual orientation is simply a natural biological variation, a natural biological variation, it is morally neutral. It is just like skin color, eye color, personality, left, right handedness. It's just a natural biological variation. There's nothing right or wrong about it, just like being left handed or right handed. There's no moral value attached to that. And all human traits, including all sexual traits, the sexual behavior of human beings, is the product of evolutionary adaptation. Everything about us, at least on a consistent naturalist view, has to be ultimately explained through our evolutionary development. We have the traits that we do because we've been adapted by evolution to certain behaviors. Now, of course, this makes homosexuality something of a mystery for Darwinists. I, I find nothing quite so entertaining as Darwinists trying to explain how same-sex behavior could promote survival and reproduction. Right? It seems very counterintuitive. And there are all kinds of imaginative theories, again, no consensus, on why evolution would produce sexual relationships that don't involve reproduction, that further the genetic basis of the species. But it has to be explained somehow along those lines. What this means, then, is that sexual orientation on this view is most probably not a personal choice, just as you didn't choose to be right-handed or left-handed, or ambidextrous if you have both handedness. Um, sexual orientation is like that. Like that. Uh, you, you, are, you, are, you are born this way. Okay? That's been a, something of a slogan in some quarters. You're born this way. Uh, you're born with your sexual orientation as part of your basic makeup. I think this would be uh, certainly the most common view among naturalists, because they tend towards biological determinism. That everything is determined either well, by some combination of your, your genetic nature and your environment, both of which are outside your control. What does this imply about the moral status of homosexuality, then, on a naturalist view? Well, it depends on what moral theory, as a naturalist, you adopt. 
If you are a nihilist, if you think that there are no objective moral norms, nothing's truly right or wrong, as some naturalists will say, then homosexuality has no moral status at all. But then that would be true of any sexual behavior, even ones that people consider to be highly moral, like pedophilia, bestiality. For the nihilist, strictly speaking, there's no right or wrong about these things. Then you have the subjectivist view. Some naturalists are subjectivists. Morality is a matter of personal preferences. So therefore, homosexuality is right for you if you personally prefer it. There's nothing more to morality than personal preferences, personal inclinations. Or then you have the utilitarian view. The utilitarians will say something is right if it brings more happiness than unhappiness. That's the, that's the criteria. If something brings more pleasure than pain overall for the most number of people, then it's acceptable. And, uh, and they might argue that homosexuality, if you give people that kind of freedom, then people are going to be happier than if they're suppressing their sexual urges. They might make that sort of argument. Some, some naturalists do try to argue uh, that on the basis of human rights. They will appeal to the idea of human rights. But actually, human rights make no sense on a naturalist view. There can be no fundamental human rights. Where would these rights come from on a naturalist view, on a, on a godless, purposeless, ultimately valueless universe? So that's, that's a, an inconsistent view for sure. What about postmodernism then? Postmodernism. Remember, I find postmodernism as the view that there are no, there's no objective reality and there are no absolute norms, no absolute standards uh, over any aspect of human nature. We construct them, we generate our own truths, our own reality, our own values. Well, on the postmodernist view, sexual orientation will basically be a social construction. Social construction. It isn't an objective fact, it isn't an innate biological trait, rather it's something that we ourselves generate. It's something that we, we, we create the idea of sexual orientation and we apply it by the way that we think and feel about things. But again, it's going to be morally neutral. If we, if we construct something, it doesn't have any inherent moral value to it. On this view, sexual identity in general, how you think of yourself sexually, is a matter of self-perception and self-definition. It's not, it's not a given. It's not something that's handed to you. Your sexual identity is how you perceive yourself, how you define yourself. You are the ultimate authority in these matters. And so on the postmodernist view, sexual orientation turns out to be a personal choice. A personal choice. You are not born this way. It's interesting, there's actually an internal debate in the LGBT world about whether you are born this way or whether it's something that you choose. And the, the, those who lean towards naturalism lean to the born this way view, and those who lean to a more postmodernist view of self-definition deny that. No, we're not constrained. This is something I actively chose. I embraced it for myself. For the postmodernist, nothing about us is fixed or a given. So what does this imply about the moral status of homosexuality, of same-sex uh, attraction and behavior? Well, on the postmodernist view, there are no objective sexual norms. There's no higher authority to determine right or wrong, how we should behave, how we shouldn't behave. But of course, there is a moral absolute here, and it's that of tolerance. We should be tolerant and affirming of sexual diversity. That's the postmodernist mantra. That's the law. Tolerance and affirmation. And I put an exclamation mark in there because there's an inconsistency here. On the one hand, not, there are no universal norms, and yet everyone should be tolerant. We should. There's a, there's a moral requirement there, moral duty to be tolerant, to be affirming, and that's ex everyone's expected 
to observe that norm, even though the postmodernists can't justify any of these universal norms. So there's, a, I think, a contradiction in this picture. Well, hopefully that gives us a sense now of how broader worldviews and anthropologies are affecting how people out there are thinking about the topic of sexual orientation. And there's, there's a lot of messy thinking. There's not really consistent views out there. Uh, it depends on your, your, your way of thinking about the broader issues. But our interest, of course, is in a biblical worldview and how we should think about this from a scriptural perspective. So what I want to do in the remaining time in this session is to outline what I call a triperspectival approach. Um, if you've ever come across the writings of John Frame, John Frame is a very uh, gifted, reformed theologian, written a lot of uh, different works, but um, his, his book on ethics is entitled The Doctrine of the Christian Life. I, I cannot recommend this book more highly. It's, if, you, if you haven't seen it, please do check it out. I don't get a commission or anything for plugging it. I, just, I really, really highly regard it. Um, but he develops in this book a tri-perspectival approach to ethics, three perspectives. What he argues is that any issue in Christian ethics uh, needs to be considered from three perspectives and integrated. And these perspectives are first, the normative perspective. The normative perspective asks, what are the objective norms or rules or principles that apply to the issue? Scripture gives us a number of norms, moral principles, moral rules, laws, how do these apply to the issue? And with this perspective, there's a particular focus on God's word in general, but especially his laws and his commandments, the rules that God gives us. That's the focus on the normative perspective. The second perspective is the situational perspective. The situational perspective asks us to consider the situation in which we find ourselves as we make these decisions. And in particular, it asks the question, what are the facts what are the objective facts in the world that are relevant to this issue? The focus in the situational perspective tends to be on God's world, the created order itself, the creation in which we are situated. How does our knowledge of our created situation uh, um, bear upon this issue? Often the situational perspective asks us to uh, consider scientific information, scientific in the, in the best sense of the term, medical information, statistical information, basic uh, empirical facts. But of course it can also include what scripture tells us about the world. Scripture gives us facts about the world. It gives us information about the world. So we can draw on both natural revelation and special revelation in the situational perspective. And then the third perspective is, uh, Frame calls the existential perspective. The existential perspective looks inward rather than outward and asks what are the subjective or internal factors that need to be taken into account. Now this is not advocating subjectivism. Subjectivism would be only looking at subjective factors. But Frame rightly argues that there are internal motivations, desires, heart attitudes that are relevant to ethics as well that we need to take into account. And so with the existential perspective, the focus is more on God's work in our hearts. How, how, is, how are our current desires and attitudes and motives relevant? And what is God working in us? The right desires, attitudes, motivations, virtues. We talk about biblical virtues, character traits. These are all part of the picture as well. Scripture places a great emphasis on the heart. Just think of, for example, the Proverbs. Proverbs are often talking about the internal state of the heart and how that affects our actions. Think of, to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus 
discourses on the law that shows that what really matters is, is the heart attitudes that lead to the actions rather than just the external actions themselves. So matters of the heart, we might say, under the existential perspective. Well, let's turn then to each of these perspectives and see what, what they tell us about this issue of sexual orientation, same-sex attraction, and so forth. Starting with the normative perspective. The normative perspective. One thing that we can consider here are, are what theologians have called creation ordinances. Creation ordinances. The idea of a creation ordinance is a moral law that is grounded in the order and design of the creation itself. Sometimes this is identified with natural law. If you don't like that term, no big deal. The point is that God has created things to function in a certain way. He's laid down certain basic ordering, moral ordering principles in the creation itself, including in the creation of human beings and human society. One of the most important creation ordinances that we see right in the creation account itself, in Genesis 1 and 2, are the ordinances of marriage and procreation, expressing God's design, God's purpose for human sexuality and for family relationships, both husband and wife, and also parents and children. So here are some relevant biblical texts, Genesis 1, 27, 28, of course. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So note, first of all, what I noted earlier, that this creation in the image of God is connected with the gender distinctions. When God creates man and woman in his own image, it's as man and woman. In the image of God, male and female and creating them. There's a connection between gender, sex, and the image of God. And then what's the very first command that they are given? The very first command is to be fruitful and multiply, to procreate. Of course, that requires a sexual union between a man and a woman. Then in Genesis 2, verse 18, we get some more information about this creation ordinance in the creation of the woman as a companion to the man. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, or a helper corresponding to him. That phrase, a helper fit for him, translates to the Hebrew, Ezer Konegdo, Ezer Konegdo, which literally means a helper corresponding to him, or a helper opposite to him. So the point is that, that these two are not equals. They're, they're not identical. They're complementary. They're, there's a helping relationship, but it's not through two identical beings, but two complementary, and in a sense, opposite beings. So there's complementarity rather than identity. One writer on this topic says, it's like the complementarity between your left hand and your right hand. They're, so they're similar, right? But they're not identical. In fact, they're re reverse of one another. They're opposites in a certain sense. They complement one another. Likewise, that's the idea here. And it's interesting that some uh, progressive writers who are trying to argue for a revisionist view of same-sex relations recognize that the root of the traditional view is right here in Genesis. So, for example, there's an, a writer, James Brownson. James Brownson wrote a book a few years ago entitled 
Bible gender and sexuality, where he tried to make a case for same-sex marriage, for same-sex relationships from Scripture. He claimed to have a high view of Scripture. He wanted to argue from Scripture. But he spent a lot of time trying to undermine the idea of sexual complementarity in Genesis. Because he knew that once you have that, everything else follows from it. And so he actually paid most attention to undermining, to arguing against the idea of gender complementarity in Genesis 2. And then, also in Genesis 2, 24, you have the first marriage, the, the, the institution of marriage given as a divine ordinance. The creation ordinance here is very clear from the text. A, father, uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother, note right there, the assumption, your parents can be a father and a mother, a male and a female. And uh, he will hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's a sexual, complementary sexual union at a fundamental biological level. Man and woman are designed to go together for the purposes of sexual union and procreation. Now, there is a sense in which we could stop right here. We've covered all the ground we need to cover, really, to get a basic view of this topic. Even if, even if there were no explicit mention of same-sex relations or homosexuality anywhere else in the Bible, it wouldn't change a thing. It wouldn't matter. I mean, the fact that it's there... It's obviously very important, helpful to us. But in a sense, all you need are the first two chapters of Genesis to establish an orthodox position on this issue. Um, one writer on this topic, um, Michael Brown, uh, says this. The Bible is a heterosexual book. That sounds unbelievably politically incorrect. But it's true. From beginning to end, it is a heterosexual book. Throughout, it simply assumes this basic gender complementarity and marriage and procreation through this sexual union. But let's go on and look at some other aspects of the normative perspective here. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, ten divine laws that theologians have typically taken as a summation <laughs> of the moral law. There's a moral law that governs human life and it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. Which of these commandments are relevant to the issue of sexual orientation? Well, I want to suggest that the most important one is actually the first command. The first command. You may not have thought that that would be the immediately relevant one, but consider what it implies. You shall have no other gods before me. What does this have to do with the issue of sexual orientation? Well, this commandment is an re utter repudiation of human autonomy, that we are our own final authority, that we get to call the shots, that we create our reality. Human autonomy is basically idolatry. It's treating humans as gods. And to treat God alone as God is to repudiate human, uh, human autonomy. And it's relevant because in our day, the modern idols are sexual identity and sexual expression. No, there's no higher law than who you are sexually and how you express yourself sexually, and everything else has to bow before that idol. So I think the first commandment is actually very relevant to at least understanding how our culture is treating this issue of sexual orientation. It's a modern idol. But then we have the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. This commandment, of course, presupposes a certain creation ordinance. It presupposes marriage between one man and one woman. The assumption is that a person will have parents, a father and a mother that have come together in a marriage covenant. So again, there's, there's presuppositions here about family, gender, sexuality. And then the seventh commandment, of course, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. 
Is it only about adultery? No, it's about, more broadly, sexual propriety in general and acknowledging the proper context and proper bounds for sexual relationships. The seventh commandment presupposes the idea of marriage <coughs> as a covenant, as an exclusive covenant between a man and a woman and sexual relations only within that covenant. So again, seventh commandment, very relevant to this issue. But there are some other biblical texts that we can add as we consider this normative perspective, what are the, the rules, the principles that apply to this topic. We have these um, fairly well-known um, laws in the Levitical Code, Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, that speak directly to the issue of same-sex relations. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an ab abomination. This is very strong language. It's the same language that's used of the practice of child sacrifice. Clearly, this is presented as something that is very uh, offensive to, uh, and the reason, because it upturns the natural order of things. Now, there have been attempts, revisionist attempts, to try to restrict the scope of this. Uh, one common argument is that actually this is just a prohibition of um, uh, homosexual cultic prostitution, that in the temples uh, there, there were fertility, the pagan nations had fertility cults, and these involved, among other things, male prostitutes. I don't know how homosexual prostitution promotes fertility. I'm not sure the pagan nations understood that either. But clearly there were pagan practices there, and this is prohibiting that. It's not, uh, it's not an absolute prohibition of what are now called uh, loving, exclusive, monogamous, consensual same-sex relations. But that is largely reading modern views into the text because these verses are in larger sections dealing with sexual immorality and also prohibiting things like um, uh, incest and bestiality that no one, well I say no one, but nearly no one would defend today. So if these other prohibitions are general moral prohibitions, the same should go for these. Moving to the New Testament, Romans 1, Paul is describing the sinfulness of the world, the wrath and judgment of God because of their uh, rebellion against God. And he says this, verses 26-27, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, these people who had failed to acknowledge God, to honor and thank him. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their sin. Scholars who have commentated on this passage have noted how Paul is appealing to natural revelation here. The attributes of God. God as creator, his eternal power and divine nature are known from the created order. He's making a general appeal to natural revelation as bringing an order and a clarity to God and man that means that people are accountable. People are held accountable for what they know. And Paul is deliberately alluding to the creation account in this passage. He's pointing back to the original order and arguing that the manifestation of sin is in fact an upturning of the natural order of things, including natural sexual relations. So Paul's argument is that simple man has tried to reverse the creator-creation distinction, worshipping the creature rather than the creator, and then actually as a judgment on that, God has handed over man to unnatural passions. So interestingly here, um, these same-sex relations are portrayed as a divine judgment itself. 
This isn't the root of the problem. The root of the problem is idolatry and rebellion against God. And this is actually a consequence of God handing people over to a worse or, or, or a further development of the reversal of the, the order of creation. A few other texts as well we need to note here. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Um, Paul's addressing the issues of, well, various issues within the Corinthian church. And he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's laying out a number of sinful practices, and he includes in it this phrase that certainly in the ESV is, in, is translated, men who practice homosexuality. I'm sure many of you are aware that there are two terms here in the Greek. There's malakoi and arsenokoitai, and uh, malakoi is fairly straightforwardly um, translated as effeminacy. Um, there's been more of a debate over the second term, arsenokoitai, uh, because it's not found in the contemporary literature. It's, it's apparently a word that Paul himself coined to describe some, some state or some practice. Uh, the, the scholar David Wright wrote a uh, very important article where he, he argued that this is a clear reference to the Levitical code, that Paul has actually coined a term that reflects the exact wording in Leviticus 18.22 in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, um, where... Uh, you can see the Greek there, I've, at least I've, I've transliterated for you, but you've got two words there. You've got arsenos and koiten, okay? Um, arsenos is a male, koiten is to lie, to lie with someone. Um, so an arsenokoitai would be um, men layers, or men who sleep with men. Men, man bedders is how one scholar translates it. Um, again, there have been attempts to try to uh, restrict the scope of this to male prostitution or cultic practices. But the problem is that if Paul had meant a more restricted scope, he could have used specific words for that purpose. He's deliberately using words that allude back to the uh, prohibitions in the Levitical Code. And as a first century Jew, there's no question what Paul would have believed about any kind of same-sex relations. He would have regarded them as unnatural and uh, immoral. And the same term briefly mention this, is, is used in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10 as well. Uh, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality uh, are synacoitis. Now, um, this is really pointing to behaviors here. The emphasis is on behavior, men who practice homosexuality, but of course this has implications for questions of attraction and desire that we will come to very shortly. A few more uh, from the New Testament. You may be heard it said, Jesus said, said nothing about homosexuality. You ever heard that? Well, Jesus himself had nothing to say about homosexuality, so, so it must be uh, not a problem for Jesus. Well, that's not strictly true. It's not strictly true. When Jesus does speak about sexual relations and um, marital relations, he's very clear uh, what he is presupposing. And so, for example, when he's questioned by the Pharisees on the issues of marriage and divorce, what does he do? He points people back to the creation account. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? The two shall become one flesh. Jesus appeals to the creation order for God's design for marriage. And if marriage is meant to be between a man and a woman, then of course sexual relations are as well. 
Likewise, elsewhere, Jesus speaks in general terms about sexual immorality. The, the Greek term is porneia, of course, where we get our term pornography from. But porneia uh, really was understood in that day to refer to any extramarital sexual activity, anything that was beyond the bounds of, of what was proper in the marriage covenant. And it would have been understood to include same-sex relations. That would have been included in this notion of porneia. So Jesus is implicitly speaking to the issue there. Well, that's the normative perspective, a number of biblical texts that lay out principles, uh, creation ordinances that govern our thinking about <coughs> same-sex relations. Let's turn to the situational perspective now, uh, the facts about the world, nature itself. The situational perspective considers our situation within the creation, particularly nature, what nature tells us about this issue. Well, first, of course, we have what is very apparent, the natural order of creation itself, in sexual relations. Men and women, not to put too fine a point on it, have biologically complementary sexual organs. That is very obvious. It's remarkable to me how rarely this is pointed out now, either because people think it's too obvious to state, or it's precisely because it's so obvious that people want to keep it out of the picture. Because it's such a, you know, it, it speaks volumes in itself, the design of human sexual organs, complementary. But also, under the situational perspective, we need to remember our doctrine of the fall. There is a creation order, but also it has become corrupted by sin. What this means is that natural doesn't imply normative. This is very important for a Christian thinking about things. Just because something is natural in the sense that it occurs in nature doesn't itself mean that it is normative. So the, from a Christian perspective, the born-this-way argument doesn't work. Just because you are born this way doesn't mean that it is ethically normative or ethically acceptable. And of course, there are ca we could point to many counterexamples of this. Uh, a, um, a pedophile might say, I was born this way. But no one, well, I say no one, again, things are going to change. But uh, very few people are going to argue, well, he was born this way, therefore it must be ethically acceptable and appropriate and natural and normal. Note itself, the term natural is actually a little ambiguous. We've got to be aware of there's an ambiguity in this term natural. Does natural mean normative? Something is natural versus unnatural. Natural things are acceptable, unnatural things aren't. Or does natural simply mean occurring naturally, occurring in nature? Uh, some people will point to um, same-sex relations among animals. Well, it's natural, therefore it's normal. Well, natural in that sense doesn't necessarily imply normal. Are we describing nature or are we saying it's normative in some way? Also under the situational perspective, there's the question of the, the basis for so-called sexual orientation. And I've, I've, noticed, uh, I've noted already that this debate, the scientific debate about the causes of same-sex attraction, same-sex behavior, there's no scientific consensus. Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it some combination of the two? There is no scientific consensus. And I would encourage you to check out the uh, report that I referenced earlier by Lawrence Mayer and Paul McHugh in the New Atlantis, which gives you some real solid scientific basis for this, or a, a solid review of the scientific literature that is really glaringly incon inconclusive on this issue. One other thing we should also mention, I think, is the issue of health risks. Again, this is, this is something uh, that is not often talked about um, because 
frankly, it's a little disturbing. It's a little icky when, when we start talking about these things. But homosexual activity is well known that homosexual activity carries all kinds of health risks. In the medical community, this is widely known, but it's also widely suppressed in that it's, you don't often hear about it. It's very rarely raised. And you can go to um, official government sites. For example, the, the CDC website I referred to earlier, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, has an entire section on gay and bisexual man's health, men's health, and it is astonishing the number of uh, risks, health risks that you put yourself uh, up against if you engage in same-sex, uh, male-to-male sexual relations. But again, from a Christian perspective, this is a confirmation of the creation order. It wasn't meant to be. When you deviate from the order of creation, then that is when um, things start to go wrong. And then turning uh, thirdly to the existential perspective. The existential perspective asks us to consider internal factors, particularly matters of the heart, our, our desires, our attractions, our inclinations, our temptations to a degree. And here, it's under the existential perspective that the issue of sexual orientation really comes into center of view. Um, we've already noted that the concept of sexual orientation itself is not a well-defined scientific or psychological concept. There's a widespread assumption that it is, but even the concept itself is not well-defined. And we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, to find that it's not a biblical concept. That's not to say that the Bible doesn't speak about these issues. We've seen that it does. But the idea that there is such a thing as sexual orientation, that's a category about how we should think about people, that is not something that Scripture itself recognizes or teaches us to, to, um, to uh, categorize people with. Scripture certainly recognizes the reality of homosexual activity and passions. We saw in Romans 1 talk of these unnatural passions. But it doesn't recognize what we would call homosexual orientation. There's a recognition of behavior, a recognition of passions, but not of orientation in the modern sense. That said, however, it's very clear that many people do experience same-sex attraction. We don't need to deny that. It's, it's an obvious datum of experience that people do. some people do experience same-sex attraction. And this can be um, a great struggle. It can be a great source of temptation. And the Bible does speak about these sort of uh, attractions towards sinful activity. Um, but what we should note, regardless of what science is supposed to tell us about sexual orientation, that from a Christian perspective, change is always possible. Um, but it is never guaranteed. There's a, there's a fine line to walk here. We're often being told sexual orientation is fixed and therefore all these reparative therapies and so forth and attempts to change people's orientation are wrong, misguided, abusive and so forth. Again, the science, there's no scientific basis for this. Uh, Mayor McHugh point out there's no evidence that sexual orientation is something fixed and innate. But certainly from a biblical perspective, we know that God can change any um, uh, simple orientation. Um, and we see that right there in 1 Corinthians 6. After Paul says, list these various simple behaviors, he says, and su such were some of you in the past tense, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. But we don't want to hold out a hope that the Bible itself 
doesn't give us. There's no guarantee that full change will be given by the Lord. And that's true of any besetting sin. It's not just true of sexual sin. It's true of anger, pride, coveting, and so forth. Yes, change is possible, but overnight change, fast change, is never guaranteed. What about same-sex attraction? Uh, this, uh, obviously, is a closely related issue. How should we think about same-sex attraction? The question that evangelicals are asking today is, is same-sex attraction itself sinful? The behavior, not, not so much a debate over that, but is the attraction itself sinful? Well, I'm going to put out a position here, and if you want to push back on it, um, then you know, we, can, we can discuss that. But my argument would be simple, that any desire to commit a simple action is a simple desire. If there's a desire towards a simple action, then we have to categorize that desire itself as not morally neutral, but in fact a sinful desire. Likewise, any inclination towards a simple action, on a biblical view, would be a sinful inclination. I have to ask, how could it be otherwise? How could an inclination towards a sin itself be morally neutral? And again, this isn't just true of sexual sins, it's true of any sins. Uh, murder is a sin. Is an inclination towards murder morally neutral? Well, Jesus talks about hatred, the, the, the inclination to murder in the heart as being sinful. And the same would be true, I think, across the board. But at the same time, however, we must recognize that Scripture says there are degrees of sinfulness. There are some sins are more heinous than others, and there's a big difference between having a sinful inclination and um, constraining oneself, resisting that inclination, as opposed to following through on that inclination and committing the sin itself. There are a number of texts there, but I think if you look at them, we'll show that there are that Scripture does make a distinction between greater and lesser sin. So we don't want to say that uh, same-sex attraction, if it is simple, then it's equivalent to actually committing same-sex acts. That's not a biblical position. But at the same time, we don't want to say that it's morally neutral either. In fact, I think we should distinguish here between different kinds of temptations. Because people raise the question, well, if someone's tempted towards a sin, the temptation itself isn't wrong. After all, Jesus was tempted, but without sin. So the temptation itself can't be sinful. I think we need to be a little more sensitive to the way the scripture speaks about temptations and draw a distinction between what would be called external temptations, external motivations luring us towards sin. Of course, that's what Jesus himself experienced with the temptations of Satan. They were external. And internal temptations that come from our fallen nature that incline us towards, that become snares, that become opportunities that lead us towards sinful behavior. And I think James 1 would be an important text here, which speaks about temptation, saying God himself doesn't tempt, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he's led away and enticed. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, I think draws out this distinction quite well. So let me, let me give you this quotation. You might find it useful. This is from his classic work, Indwelling Sin. Owen writes, Now what is it to be tempted? It is to have that proposed to man's consideration, which, if he close, that is, if he follow through on it, it is evil, it is sin unto him. This is sin's trade, epithume, it lusts. He's commenting here on James 1. It is raising up in the heart and proposing unto the mind and affections that which is evil, trying, as it were, whether the soul will close with its suggestions or how far it will carry them on 
though it does not wholly prevail. And here comes the distinction. Now, when such a temptation comes from without, outside, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good or evil. In other words, there's no, there's no slur on the soul itself when there's an external temptation, unless it be consented to, unless you actually give in to the external temptation. But the very proposal from within, if the temptation arises from within, it being the soul's own act, is its sin. So when the temptation actually arises from simple inclinations, then uh, there, there is a degree of guilt and culpability exposed from that, um, from that source. So these are sort of biblical distinctions that I seem, think need to be uh, drawn here. Okay, let me quickly wrap up by drawing out some practical implications, and this may be um, topic for discussion later on. Two, two areas, cultural and pastoral. Cultural issues. First, I believe that we should continue to strongly resist the push to normalize and sanitize homosexuality. We might feel that the battle has already been lost, but remember Elijah. <laughs> remember Elijah and the, and the remnant kept by faith. There's still a case to be made. The, the, maybe the culture has been lost for a time, but still there's a need for us to resist for the sake of the church, if nothing else. And we need to be aware of movements within the church to dilute biblical teachings. The threat isn't just out there in the culture. There are movements within the church to compromise on some of these issues. And if anything, the greater danger is to be found within the church today. Why should we be culturally active? Why should we take a stance on this? Three motivations. Gospel truth, the public good, and religious freedom. Gospel truth is the most important point because... If you, if you aren't allowed to define sin biblically, then you can't define the gospel either. If the gospel is about deliverance from sin, when you take away the right to define sin, then you take away the right to define the gospel itself. So the gospel uh, itself is our main motivation, but also the public good. Uh, these are lifestyles that are not good for society and not good for individuals. If we care about our neighbor, then we need to speak out on these issues, and also for the sake of religious freedom, because these... Uh, laws that are being put in place are, are designed to, to silence, not to give freedom, but actually to constrain, to take away certain liberties. And there's a, there's a clash of what Al Mola has called um, religious liberty and erotic liberty going on today. But on the pastoral side, some implications. First, we should help our congregations to understand and apply a biblical worldview. We need to start at the root of the issue. The ethical questions need to be addressed, but fundamentally, we should be helping our congregations just to think biblically and holistically about human nature, society, relations, and all these issues under the rubric of a biblical worldview. And that will have a kind of prophylactic effect uh, when they encounter uh, unbiblical ideas in the culture. We should give our congregations clear and accurate teaching about sexual ethics. Yes, it is awkward to preach on these topics. But it is important. We mustn't shy away from it because it is awkward, because we don't like talking about these things, because people are going to be embarrassed. We should give our congregations clear and accurate teaching. Not only what we believe, but why we believe it, the rationale for it, because it makes sense in terms of God's design for mankind. We should hold out the promises of the gospel to every sinner. We should hold out the promises of the gospel to every sinner. No Christian, whether same-sex attracted or not, no Christian should be going around in a constant state of guilt and shame. If someone's continually feeling guilt and shame because of their sexual urges, then we haven't preached the gospel to them. We haven't preached the whole gospel to them. 
We preach the half gospel. It's bringing conviction of sin, but it isn't bringing peace with God. So we need to be sensitive to the souls uh, and, and give, the, preach the peace and the reconciliation that every sinner can know through Jesus Christ. And lastly, we should cultivate a church environment in which people can share their struggles. This, I think, has been the real failing of the church, that because we haven't talked about these things, because we've highlighted, because we've maybe focused too much on the cultural issues and the pastoral issues, we haven't made churches a safe space. I don't like that phrase, safe space. You know, it's totally overused. But there's a sense in which a church should be a safe space for repentant sinners to share their struggles, to find support, to find sympathy, to find grace. We all need that, whatever our, 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 our sexual desires, whatever our sins, we need to find an environment. Because if people don't find it in the church, they'll find it elsewhere. And they'll find it in an environment that is affirming and will tell them there's nothing wrong with this, and that's not going to be uh, loving towards them. 